are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien, well-known author, some of his greatest works, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. Maybe you saw some of those movies a few years back. I want to talk to you this morning about one of his lesser-known works, a short story entitled Smith of Wooten Major. How many of you ever heard of that obscure book? I didn't think so. It's a kid's book, actually. Tolkien has a, a profound insight through the story about how our life and our abilities as gifts from God have an important uh, role to be played in life. Well, the story goes as a young boy, Smith Smithson, received a rare gift at his small village's celebration. A piece of cake that each children had, but his had a silver star within that piece of cake. And as Smith wears that star on his forehead, it shines with light and it allows him to travel to magical lands and possess special powers and privileges. Well, this goes on for numerous years until he's an adult. And one day as he's traveling home from one of his fantastic journeys, Alf, the master cook, and baker of that cake many years before starts walking alongside the path with Mr. Smith. Now, unbeknownst to Smith, Alf is actually the king of all the land and the one who chose to give young Smith that silver star all those years ago. And as they near Smith's home, Alf, or the king, says, do you not think, Master Smith, that it is time for you to give this thing? speaking of that magical star, to give this thing up. And Smith replies, what is that to you, Master Cook? And why should I do so? Isn't it mine? It came to me? And may not a man keep things that come to him so, at least as a remembrance? And the king says, some things, some things, yes. Those that are free gifts and given for remembrance, but other things are not so given. They cannot belong to a man forever, nor be treasured as heirlooms. They are merely lent. You have not thought, perhaps, that someone else might need this thing. But it is so. Time is pressing. Well, today we are entering into a new section in our journey through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll be there in just a moment. We're calling today's message, Your Place in His Story. I want you to just think about this for a moment. Have you thought about how you fit into God's story? You know, most of us have been encouraged to think something like Smith Smithson. What's, what's that to you? And how, why should I do so? It's mine, isn't it? We kind of think of our life that way. This is my life. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Billy Joel philosophy of 1978. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life and leave me alone. You see, friends, history provides countless examples of God's faithfulness, his story as seen in Scripture and through church history. And it tells of God's ability to save and to strengthen and to send people on mission to powerfully advance his kingdom through our gifts and abilities. The Gospel of John that we're working our way through is an account of his story in history. 
so that we might come to know Jesus like we've never known him before, or in John's own words, the, the theme verse of this entire book, we've mentioned it just about every week so far, John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. wonder if you've ever tried to trace your family heritage. Maybe ask your relatives about maybe a great-grandmother or grandfather or some obscure aunts or uncles. Or maybe you've used one of those popular websites like Ancestry.com or some of those DNA matching services to seek out long-lost relatives. You know, it's always fascinating to kind of trace the, the story of your lineage, where you came from, where your ancient relatives lived, what they experienced, the, the things they did and the decisions they made. Uh, and that's interesting because that all plays a part in how you got to this place and this point in time in your life. Knowing that information helps you understand how and where your life fits into your family's story. Well, we want to relate this to today's Bible passage. You see, if you are a child of God, then you are a part of his family and a part of his story, the story of redemption. And if we desire to know how our life fits into God's story, then we need to get to know the God who created us and seek his kingdom first. Only when we put God's word into practice will we begin to see where our place is and how our story, our story becomes a part of God's story. And so that's our goal for today, to think about and to grapple with answers to this question. Where do you fit into God's story? We want to begin by considering your place in God's story. Your place in God's story. I'd like for you to read with me the first section of our text from John 3, verses 22 through 27. The words are on the screen. Let's read this together. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Amen. The word of God. And so I want you to notice that verse 22 begins with, after this. And this is the Apostle John's way of kind of transporting us ahead a bit, a bit ahead of in time just a bit. Uh, 
Uh, we've seen already Jesus' very first sign, changing the water to wine. We know that Jesus likely performed other miracles that John doesn't record. And then John shows us how Jesus kind of went public, right? When he went into the temple that first time and cleared out the temple. And then last week, we eavesdropped a bit on a, a private conversation between Jesus and a preeminent biblical scholar, a, a leader named Nicodemus, where Jesus introduced the concept of the new birth or being born again. And now John shares with us that after these things, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. Now, Bible scholars will tell us that this was kind of a, an obscure time period for Jesus because there's not a lot recorded in the Gospels about what Jesus and his disciples did in the Judean countryside early on in his ministry. However, we do know that he went for two reasons. Number one, Jesus wanted to spend some time with his disciples, with the guys. Some scholars speculate it could have been as much as six months of training time out there in the wilderness that Jesus just spent primarily with the guys. And then second, we notice that his disciples begin to baptize people, just like John was doing, preparing people for the kingdom of heaven. Well, then we get to verse 23, and now John uh, B., remember, John the baptizer, uh, also was baptizing, it says, at Anon near Salim because there was a lot of water there. And people were coming, coming out into the wilderness to be baptized. And John and his disciples, of course, had been baptizing people at the Jordan River, but now they were baptizing in very close proximity to where Jesus and his disciples were ministering. And so we see in verse 24 that John the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, he wants us to know that this event took place in between Jesus' baptism and John the baptizer's arrest. And so it's most likely the last time where John the baptizer sees Jesus before he's arrested and thrown into prison and eventually executed. So John is just kind of setting the stage for us there. And then we get to verse 25, and we see that there's some sort of dispute between John's disciples and a, a Jewish man about purification practices. Now, we don't know who this certain Jew was, but it would appear that this guy was questioning the legitimacy of John's ministry of, of baptism out there in the wilderness. But at the same time, John's disciples were dealing with this issue of Jesus and his guys, who were also baptizing people. And so John the baptizer's disciples, who had given their time and energy and affection to, to John, they're, they're upset with what they see going on here. Lots of people are leaving John and flocking to hear Jesus. I think they were so jealous that they wouldn't even use Jesus' name. They said, that man, that man. They wouldn't even say his name. You could hear their resentment when they called John rabbi, teacher. Meaning John has the real authority and that guy didn't. Teacher John, can't you see that the one you told us about is now baptizing just like you? And everyone's going over to him. That guy is, is he, he's upstaging you, Rabbi John. And so how does John 
the baptizer feel about the masses of people shifting to Jesus here in the Judean wilderness? Was John angry? Was he resentful? Was he insecure? Was he sad? Now, John was a well-known and a gifted preacher from God. And yet he gives a very humble reply. Look at verse 27. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You see, John knew the scriptures. He understood God's plan all through the Old Testament. And he also knew why God had brought him to this place and specifically for this purpose. And so John, in essence, was saying, I only have this ministry because of the kindness and the mercy of God. God brought these people here, and if God wants to take them somewhere else, that's his decision. In effect, John is saying, it's not about me. It's not about me. Anything and everything that I am or I have is because of God's grace. I just want to be faithful to God's plan. And friends, that's what God wants from us as well. He wants us to just be like John and to be a good steward of what God has given us so that we might just do his will. Well, how well would we do if we had more of kind of that Billy Joel attitude? It's my life. Leave me alone. But you know, that's not John, right? John's saying, it's not about me. In fact, say that with me. It's not about me. If anybody has told you or helped you to believe or to think that your journey to Christ and to eternity is about you, it's not. I'm here this morning to tell you that. It's not about you. It's about him. It is his story and we play only a small part in it. Friends, our place is in God's story. This life is not about our story and how God might fit into our story. It's about his story and how we fit in. John was not rallying people to his cause or building a personality, a cult around himself. He was not threatened by Jesus' presence. He wasn't jealous of Jesus' ministry. He understood his place. John knew his ministry was winding down, and I believe that he deliberately brought his disciples to the area where Jesus was. I think he wanted his disciples to follow Jesus, to know him, because it was and it is all about him. Now, later, we'll find out when we get there, but later when John is in prison, he sends his disciples back to Jesus to confirm the fact that he is indeed the Messiah, and I think he does that because John understood his place in God's story, which has a beginning and has an end. And he not only knew his place in relationship to Jesus, he wanted his disciples to understand their place. He understood his place so much that he even understood which geographical location he was supposed to be in. So let's kind of make a personal application from this. What about you? Why, why do you think you're here today, in this place, in this very building today? It's because someone allowed their life to be a part of God's story of redemption, and they at some point 
pointed you towards Jesus. And then there were probably others who God brought into your life along the way at certain times, in certain places, who were committed to walk alongside you in your spiritual journey. Hopefully that's still happening today. People in the right place at a specific, specific time for a specific purpose. Perhaps now you are playing that role for others, pointing them to Jesus. You see, these are the people who point away from themselves and towards Jesus. And that's the kind of people that God wants us to be. Taking our place in God's story requires some humility, like John had humility. It requires some steps of faith and obedience on our part. And it comes from understanding our place in his story, where he has called us. And what he has called us to do and to be. Which then brings us to the second point in this passage. Not only do we have a place in God's story, we also have a part in that story. Your part in God's story. I, I want to read the next part of this account together. Verses 28 through 30. These are John the baptizer's words of counsel to his followers as they come to complain about Jesus. It's kind of his answer to them. Verses 28 through 30. Let's read this together. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. The word of God. So in verse 28, John reminds his guys, he says, hey, remember I told you. I told you I'm not the Christ. I have been sent before him. John is telling him, I've already told you this, but you don't like the answer. That never happens with us, does it? That God has something for us in his word, or we understand something to be true, but perhaps we don't like the answer. And so we come to Jesus and say, hey, this doesn't look right. Like those guys came to John. And in essence, John answers and says, the purpose for which God put me on earth is to prepare the way and point people to the Messiah, including you guys, his close disciples. I am not the Christ, John says. I am not the solution to your problems. I am not your savior. Don't put me on a pedestal or put your hope in me. Put your hope and your trust in Christ Jesus alone. And friends, if our hope, if our perceived solution to the woes of this world is a person or a philosophy or a political ideal or a system or anything else other than Jesus, then we are off base. You see, John understood God's overarching plan of redemption and he was content simply to play his part. In verses 29 and 30, John uses a, the picture of a wedding to illustrate his point. He basically says to the guys, hey, I'm just the best man. Now, the best man's job was important. His role was to prepare the wedding festivities, to make sure that everything went smoothly. 
We all know that, that weddings are supposed to be this great, joyous occasion. It's a, a joy for the best man to make sure that the bridegroom is there on time and that everything goes well so that the wedding can take place. But you know what? Once the, the bridegroom and the bride step into the scene, the best man's work is done. And he fades into the background, just like all the other people in the wedding party. When you go to a wedding, you don't go to see all the girls in their dresses and all the guys in their suits. You're there to see the bride and the groom, because that's what it's all about. And so John takes that picture and he applies it to himself. And he says, this joy of mine is now complete it has been my joy to bring people to Jesus, to the Lamb of God, to introduce Jesus. And this is what I was called to do. John the Baptist was born for that time so that he could do his part in God's story. And friends, it is the same for every one of us. If we have been redeemed by Christ, then we all have a part in God's story. God has brought us to this place. He has given each of us gifts and talents and time and abilities. And each of us has been given the responsibility to use what the Lord has given us to accomplish our part in his story. He wants us to use our lives to build up and to invest in the bride, the church. We all have a part in God's story, in our various spheres of influence, in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, wherever we are, God has called us to be a part of his plan. And so the question we must ask ourselves is, do you know the reason why God has you right here in this place, in this church, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school? Do you know your place and your purpose in God's unfolding story? Each one of us has been uniquely created by God to fulfill our part in some way, our part in his story. We've been put here by God for a specific time and a specific purpose. But at the same time, we need to remember this life is not about us. It's about his story. And his story is all about connecting people to the Savior. It's about making the way straight for others to come to Jesus. We exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I have a, a good friend of mine I went to Bible college with. He's blind. And he recently shared in, in one of his writings that when he was going blind, that he fought against it. And even as his eyesight faded away, he believed, he believed so much that God would heal and restore his eyesight. In fact, some well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ even told him that that was God's plan for him. And they prayed over him and they believed that his eyesight was going to be restored. But it was not to be. And eventually, he wrote, he came to understand his blindness. That his blindness was a part of God's bigger plan. God's bigger story. And now he understands that he has a role to play in that bigger story. It's not about him. 
It's about others. That is his story. And his story is just a part of God's much larger story. You and I each have our own individual stories as well. And it's up to us to come to understand how our small story fits in to God's magnificent, vast, wonderful story. Because John knew God and his plan of redemption for this world, he was secure in why he was here and what he was called to do as a part of God's story. But what about us? What about you? Do you understand that your whole life, whether it lasts a year or two more or for decades, that your life is a part of a bigger, more important story, his story? It's up to us to strive to understand our place in his story. Which leads us to the final point. If we really want to understand our place and our part in God's story, then we must be fully acquainted with the protagonist of God's story. The protagonist. I needed another P word. I had to go to the, the uh, I can't even say it, the thesaurus to find this word. What can I say? A P word, protagonist. You might have to go back to your junior high or high school English class to remember this term. The protagonist is the leading character or one of the main characters in a, a drama or a movie or a novel, or it is the main or most prominent figure in a real situation. And so if we want to know what our place and part in God's story is, we must first know the protagonist of the story, Jesus Christ. As John elaborates in verse 31, no one, no one, no pastor, no priest, no imam, no Buddhist monk, or anyone else on this earth can save us. Or guarantee our salvation. As we heard last Sunday in the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus said, no one will enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born of the water and the spirit. Who? No one. No one will enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Unless they understand the protagonist and who he is. And how he brings about the new birth in our life. It is only Jesus that comes from heaven. That paid the way for you and for me. To be a part of God's eternal story. Many have and many will reject the person of Jesus Christ. They will reject his testimony. But only those who have placed their trust fully in him. As Lord and Savior can have the promise the promise of forgiveness and peace and eternal life. Only when we get to know the one who created us. And how do we do that? We spend time with him on a daily basis. We spend time in his word. We spend time conversing with him through prayer. By allowing him to teach and guide us through his spirit. And only when we do that will we be able to find out what it is that we are created for. When we discover Jesus, we will find our part and our place in his unfolding story of grace and truth and peace. And I think this is what John meant when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. 
Friends, Jesus Christ must have an increasingly greater place and part in our lives. That word must in the sentence is what's called a present imperative tense. And what that means is, first of all, it's an imperative. That means it's a command. And then it means in the present that it's ongoing. It keeps happening. He must continue to increase and I must continue to decrease. Jesus' increasing and my decreasing must be a reality in my life in order for others to see Christ more and more through me. For me to point to Jesus like John pointed to Jesus, I must be decreasing and Jesus must be increasing. In late 2012, 75-year-old Marion Shirtliff purchased a Bible in a used bookstore near her home in San Clemente, California. And after making her purchase and returning home, she discovered a couple of folded pages tucked into the middle of that old Bible. The contents of the yellowed notebook sheets contained a child's handwriting that looked somewhat familiar to Marion. To her amazement, Miss Shirtleff discovered her name at the top of the first page. And when she looked closer, she realized that she was actually reading a four-page essay that she had written as a 10-year-old girl 65 years before to earn a merit badge for the Girl Scout troop in Covington, Kentucky, where she grew up, more than 2,000 miles from where she had just purchased the Bible in that used bookstore. By her own account, Miss Shirtliff was deeply moved. She said, I opened the Bible and there was my name. I recognized my handwriting. I was shaking. Literally, I was crying. Although it remains a mystery how the essay ended up in a Bible in a used bookstore halfway across the country. One thing is certain. When we look deeply into God's Word, when we spend time in God's Word, we will see evidence of our life as well. In his story, in his story, we see individuals just like us. People who pursue faith and hope in God. But people who also battle depression and doubt, lust and pride. As we read the biblical stories about Abraham and Ruth and David and Mary and Peter, we also recognize our own life story. Where do you fit in God's story? Have you discovered your place and your part in his unfolding story? Is your life in Jesus more about you than it is about him? Or are you allowing God to use your life to point others to the person of Jesus. You know, there will be times in our life when we do not know where God wants us to be or what he wants us to do. So what do we do? What do we do while we wait for the answer? Well, it's pretty simple. As we wait on God, we delve into his word, we seek his spirit, and we share with others in the place that he has us right at that time. 
in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever God has placed us, we can point people to Jesus right now. Even in our time of waiting, our story can be a part of God's story. Not just for now, but for all of eternity. And so my prayer is that each of us would come to grapple with and then understand our part and our place in God's magnificent story. Let's pray together.